So, how many of you guys know the saying, uh, the proof is in the pudding? Anybody, you guys heard that? Okay. Um, do you know where that saying came from? Because when you think about it, why would you hide the proof in pudding? <laughs> right? Do you know where the saying came from? Uh, probably, because it's pudding, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, it actually comes from an older proverb, uh, which was, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. You can see why we shortened that to the proof is in the pudding. Um, but uh, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting, meaning what you know whether or not pudding is good by if you taste it, right? Um, and we use this saying to, to talk about just proof in general, like you're claiming something, you're doing something, whatever. Uh, well, prove it. The proof's in the pudding. Can, can you, you know, you're saying you're the best at this, that, or the other? Well, proof's in the pudding, right? Anybody watching the World Series right now? Anybody? Yes, like four of you. Um, anybody watching hockey right now? Yeah, okay. <laughs> like two of you, okay. Um, see, sports analogies just don't work in Canada. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you have an athlete making great claims or the team saying, hey, we're the best. Prove it, right? Uh, well, what we've been seeing in the book of John throughout uh, is Jesus making these claims of who he is and what Um, He is there to do, making claims such as that he is divine, that he is God, that he is the Son of God, um, that he is the Creator, that he is the great I Am. Uh, We've seen him making all of these claims, but you could say, well, okay, Jesus, prove it. The proof's in the pudding. How how do you how how do you prove this? How do you prove that you are who you say you are? And so what does Jesus do? He lets his friend die, comes three days later, and brings him back to life. I don't know about you, but that's some pretty good pudding. <laughs> like, from down home, where I'm from, we call that nana pudding. All right? Nana pudding is the good kind. Not banana pudding. Banana pudding is like factory processed from a store, and it tastes... Yeah, no, nanner pudding is when you have the almost two ripe bananas all made together, and it's got to have the vanilla wafer cookies put in it, all right? Like, that's, that's nanner pudding, and it is good stuff, and uh, anybody that doesn't like nanner pudding, there's something wrong with them. Um, but Jesus bringing somebody back from the dead, how much better proof can you have? I mean, this is what Lyndon was covering uh, two weeks ago. It's like, hey, the guy's dead. You know, they, they even said, no, he, he would stink by now. He's rotting, right? And, and yet Jesus, by his words, by his mouth, speaks life back into this guy and calls him out of the grave. What better proof could you have? And that's where we, we pick up today with all these people that are there And in John chapter 11, verse 45, it says this, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, so who's Mary? He's Lazarus' sister, all right? So they came with Mary to the tomb. They see what happens, and they had seen what he did, believed in him. Many who saw what happened said, yes, all this stuff that he's been saying is true. It holds up. This is some good pudding right here. Like, this guy is the real deal. 
Like when he says who he says he is, he is backing it up with the fact that he can call a guy out of the grave. And they believe. But the thing that can almost blow your mind is the fact that it just says many. Not all. There were people that were there for that moment that still said, nah, nah, I don't like banana pudding. Not, not, not so good. Stupid people, stupid people. I'm kidding, kind of, but seriously, they're dumb. Um, and it goes on in verse 46 with what some of these people did, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So you have this amazing moment where the creator of the universe, wrapped in human flesh, taking on flesh as a man, come to live as one of us to show us how to live, to, to pay, ultimately to pay the price for us, which we'll get to in a minute. But he's there, and he does something that nobody can do. Nobody has done before, and he speaks, and a guy is raised to life. And some people say, you know what I need to do? I need to run and tell the religious leaders that don't like this guy. They should really know right now. That's very important. Um, so they take off. They run to tell these guys. And we know what they call them. Tattletales. Little tattletales. Nobody likes a tattler, okay? I keep telling my son that, hey, nobody likes a tattler. Um, but what we see here is that when confronted with overwhelming proof of who Jesus is, some believe, while others do not. Same is true today. You can have all the proof in the world um, of who Jesus is, what he claimed, and what he did. And some people are going to see it and say, yeah, I believe. This is awesome. He is incredible. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. And others are going to say, eh. And they're going to pass. And they're going to miss out. Well, the passage goes on. In verse 47, it says this, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. All right, so they're getting the whole, this is the whole leading group over uh, Israel at the time. So they're under, of course, Rome is ultimately in charge, uh, but Rome sets up kind of like puppet governments under them. Um, and so uh, this is one of those puppet governments. This is the puppet government in charge over um, Jerusalem and Israel, specifically relating to their worship and that kind of thing. Uh, but these are people that have some status. They have a place in society. And here's what they said. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, I don't think he knew what he was saying. Because what he's saying there is so profound, and that's what John's pointing out. He's saying, hey, here's what's best. We kill this guy, and then the Romans don't come and take away our power, our status. Um, they don't come and quash us. 
You know what happened a few years later, AD 70, roughly probably 35-ish years later? Rome came, and they squashed Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. They destroyed it all because there was a political uprising. Was Jesus leading a political uprising? No. And yet, that's their concern. That's their great fear, is that, oh no, the Romans are going to come. Here's what's better. Here's what's better. Let's kill this guy, and then we don't have to worry about it. But what's really being said there, in a prophetic way, is the fact that it is better for Jesus to die paying the penalty for sin than for the whole world to perish. Because without Christ, we are dead in our sin and our trespasses. And when we die, we will stand before our Creator and have to give an account. And I don't know about you, but except for Jesus, I would be found wanting. And our only hope is found in Him and what He did on the cross. And the fact that He rose from the dead three days later. So not only did he raised another guy from the dead just by speaking, but he himself said, here's the ultimate pudding. I'm coming back to life. There's an empty tomb. The grave could not hold him, and he rose from the dead. And so this, this priest here, Caiaphas, says this, better for one man to die than that the whole nation should perish. And This, this also gives us a little insight to, into the beautiful complexity of biblical prophecy. Because as finite humans, we want to come to things like biblical prophecy, and we want to, at least I, want to like mathematically categorize it and map it out, right? Um, especially we've done a lot of this through theology relating to end times and those kind of things. Like, here's the exact order of how it's going to happen. Um, here's exactly how everything's going to take place. And then this guy, you'll listen to him, and he sounds really good. He sounds like he's got it all figured out. And then you go listen to this guy, and he's saying something different. Like, well, that sounds good too. That sounds like he's got it figured out. Both of them are using the Bible. Both of them are quoting different places. Like, what's going on here? Well, uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I came to the end of my degree, and I needed two more courses to finish my degree, and they're like, I couldn't find any way to get these two courses. And so I went to my favorite professor and, and just told him my dilemma and what I was up against. He said, well, actually, Wayne, what I'm, I'm about to, in January, I'm going to be going to Indonesia and Malaysia, and I'm going to be teaching two courses for other schools that would count for what you need, and I can get our school to let you independent study it and go with me, and then you get the classes you need. I was like, awesome. Um, and so I kind of felt like uh, um, Timothy running along with Paul on a missionary journey because like this guy had been a missionary in Indonesia. And, uh, and so like he knew the language and all of that. And like, it was just, it was really cool. Um, but that course was, uh, he was teaching in Indonesia on the book of Daniel. Now he told me, he said, Wayne, um, I'm going to be teaching this in their language, not your language. Uh, so you probably shouldn't even come to the class because uh, you will understand nothing. Um, so what I want you to do is a true independent study. I want you to research the book of Daniel um, and then write a commentary on it. And that will be your coursework for this course. 
And I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, Daniel, I know Daniel, right? Like, so you've got him, like, he doesn't eat the king's food. Uh, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fire, and the furnace. Like, yeah, this is easy stuff to write about. You know, Daniel in the lion's den. Like, this is all really easy stuff to, to write about. So I'm working on it, studying everything. And then you get to Daniel 7. And then the rest of Daniel is these visions and prophecies. And I'm like, what in the world does this mean? And you read, read one, and it's like they, everybody kind of just fits it into whatever their framework is. And they're like, well, here's my framework of how, how the future is going to look. So I, I fit this passage into it. And then you read another guy, and he fits it into his view. And I'm like, well, but what I want to do is I want to say, what, what is Daniel saying here? What is he saying? That's what I want to understand. That's what I want to write. And then I got to the most encouraging verse I probably read in, um, uh, in my seminary days as I was pulling out my hair uh, relating to my schoolwork. And this was from Daniel chapter 8. Daniel has just had this big vision. And even in the vision, he says, I don't understand this. Please give me interpretation. He gets an interpretation. And then at the end of that chapter, he says this. If we can throw it up on the screen, Daniel eight twenty seven. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And I was like, the guy that wrote it down and had the vision didn't even understand it. How am I supposed to understand this? And, uh, and so that was very encouraging to me in that moment. And I thank the Holy Spirit for his providence in having Daniel put that there. Um, but no, so I say that to say that to kind of give us two words of advice here, okay? One, when it comes to prophecy, let's not be too dogmatic in our understanding that we've got it all figured out. Because in Jesus' day, the people who knew the prophecies relating to his first coming the best were this group of Pharisees who were trying to kill him. So let's not be the ones that, that know it best and miss out on it, all right? And two, I just want to tell you in the end, we're going to get to look back and we're going to say, wow, Jesus, you fulfilled all of it. This verse has seemed like you're saying this, you did that. This verse seemed like it said it was this, you did that. It all worked out just like it did with his first coming. That's what we see in the New Testament, especially the book of Matthew. Matthew goes through so many of these prophecies and saying, look, here's what was prophesied. Here's how Jesus did it. Here's what was prophesied. Here's what happened. Here, 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 here. And it's going to be the same when we come to the ultimate end. We just sang a beautiful song about when the trumpet sounds and we're all there with him and he comes back and we get to celebrate in that time. I mean, there's certain things we can know for sure without a doubt. And here's the one for me. It's the fact Jesus is coming back, he wins, and I'm on his team. Like, that's, that's what it boils down to for me. And so, uh, all of the semantics of when and how and where and the roadmap to getting there, you know, if you like to study that, great. Give glory to God by, glory to God by using your brain to think about what his word says. But um, let's not let that be a divisive thing or anything like that. So... I just say all that to say, even this guy, Caiaphas, not a good guy, yet he was the high priest, and in that role, God used him to make a profound prophecy, which is 100% true.
It was far better for us and for the whole nation and the whole world that Jesus would die on the cross than for all of us to perish. And John goes on in his explanation. He says in verse 52, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, the price that Jesus paid wasn't just for the Jews. It's for all of God's children. All those whom he calls to himself, those who he has chosen, who he's given life to. And that is the good news is the fact that God's children are saved by Jesus. That's where our hope is found, and that is where we can rest in his power. So from there, what happens? Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And so here's the deal. Jesus knows all of this. He knows exactly what's going on. And so he goes to Ephraim. Why? Was it because he's scared of these guys? He's like, oh, they're really powerful. Better run. No? I mean, he's the most powerful one. He went because it wasn't time yet. And so he went because he was following the plan exactly. Just like we said, all of the prophecies from the Old Testament relating to his first coming, he fulfilled every one of those. And that had to do even with a timeline. That had to do with a sequence of events. Because ultimately the time for him to die was during the Passover a time that is, was designed in the Old Testament to remind people of the moment when the, 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 the spirit of death passed over the Israelites because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And so Jesus was that ultimate lamb. He was the lamb who paid the price so that we would be passed over because of our sin. And so it was all in the right time. So as we're approaching the Passover here in the book of John, this is the Passover where Jesus is going to walk in to Jerusalem. This is the Passover where there will be the triumphal entry. This is the Passover where ultimately he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be face false accusations, and he will be nailed to a cross. So that's coming, but it's not there yet. And Jesus knows it's not time yet. And so he goes and hangs out in Ephraim, hangs out in this little town, middle of nowhere. And so from there, we can see the big thing is the fact that Jesus, not only does he follow the plan that God had, but Jesus is the plan. He is the plan. The way he lived his life, the things that he did were God's plan, and he followed it to perfect execution. He followed it to exactly the way that God planned it and the way that he wanted it to be. These other guys, they had their plans, right? 
Here, we know what we need to do. We need to kill him. Well, where'd he go? Anybody know where he is? They can't find him. They had their plans, but their plans were for naught. Because Jesus' plan is the one that actually happens. His is the one that carries through. And as they were sharing with you earlier from our leadership retreat this weekend, we, we have a lot of plans. But what we want is God's plan. What we want is to follow what Jesus has in store for us, for this church, in this community, in this time, and in this place. Because if, if we can make all the plans in the world and we can make, write the best vision statements or come up with the best ideas, but if it's not what he wants and it's not his plan, then it doesn't matter. And I was reminded of that this week when I was reading James 4. It says in verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. And James is just reminding us there that what ultimately matters is his plan. And we are but a mist. I mean, does that makes you really feel good about yourself, right? Like... Wow, the Bible calls me a mist. That, that's, that's beautiful. Well, it is the Word of God, so there you go. Um, but we are but a mist. We are but a breath in light of eternity, in light of what He's doing. So what an honor it is for us to use our mist for Him, to be a part of His big picture, to be a part of His plan of what He's doing in the world. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I thank you that you do have a plan. I thank you that Jesus was that plan. I thank you that he laid down his life for us. That through the price that he paid, we're able to see salvation. That we can be forgiven of our sin because he died on a cross. It was truly better that one man should die than that we all should perish. And I thank you for making that decision, Lord, and for being willing to be that sacrifice, to be that ultimate Passover lamb for us so that we can be passed over, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be made right with you. I pray that more and more we'll see the proof of who you are, and they'll taste that excellent pudding. That they will see the reality of that you are who you claim that you, you are, and that you can do the things that you claim that you can do. I pray that we'll see more and more people come to salvation in you, and faith in you, and be followers of you. 
pray all of this in Christ's holy name.